Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Shannon McHugh, Associate Professor of Italian and French at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, uh, to talk about her new book, Petrarch and the Making of Gender in Renaissance Italy, out this year, 2023, with the Amsterdam University Press. Hello, Shannon. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yana. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. This is wonderful. How are you today? I'm great. I'm having a great year. Um, I'm at the Huntington Library this year. I so it's it's pretty paradisal. I imagine every like everything, right? From where you go to work to your weather to just for somebody who works on Patrick, I feel like I'm in the green space. I I, I feel like <laughs> the birds and plants respond to my moods. It feels um, like I'm inside the fiction. <laughs> oh, that's. It is locus very amoinous. <laughs> that is fantastic. I'm so jealous. Um, uh, I mean, just also, and the, the opportunity to really spend that time on your scholarship is also, as well as the other benefits. Oh my gosh. They, um, we, uh, we had a welcome dinner last week where the director of research um, talked about how uh, their, the Huntington staff's aim is just to support this uninterrupted year uh, of working on the things we love most. And it was really moving. Oh my God. I think I might cry just thinking about it, honestly. (laughs) Uh, It's gorgeous. All right. Um, So tell me, well, we're going to talk about what you're doing right now. Yes. In in a minute, but let's talk about first, we're going to talk about Petrarch and the making of gender in Renaissance Italy, um, which is the book you finished. So in some ways it's been away from you for a while. This will be a nice like walk down memory lane. Um, but, you know, it's also just come out. So it's super fresh for the rest of us. So how did you come to this topic? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I have worked, uh, I had worked on women writers for a, a while, even when I was in graduate school, that was, or sorry, as an undergraduate, uh, I was working on early modern women writers and was really fascinated. That's what I went to graduate school to do. But I, I still was uh, really searching around for a while in terms of trying to land on the right dissertation project. Um, my advisors and I, I feel like we went back and forth about several ideas and they were by, by my advisors or myself deemed not viable for different reasons. I just feel like I hadn't, um, I hadn't landed on the thing I wanted. And then, um, I was in a lyric seminar and I had never done poetry. I, I was really actually didn't want to take this class. Um, I always thought I didn't like poetry, but it turns out that um, like a lot of things, if you, I don't know, I guess if you're just, if you're exposed to the good stuff by a good guide, you are really into it. Um, and I was loving it. And then this was uh, also the year that um, I think this was the year that Catherine Bates, who does English Renaissance studies came out with um, her book on masculinity and, um, and lyric poetry in the English tradition. 
And in class, we got into this conversation about how even though in Italian studies, we have so much amazing work on early modern women writers. Um, uh, if any if any of our listeners are familiar with the Other Voice in Early Modern Europe series, which is a series that has been around for 30 years now, um, putting out translations of early modern women writers, um, Italian writers have always been the most numerous in that series. It's getting, it's close, it's gotten closer in recent years, but this is just to say Italianists, we are, we, we are so good at unearthing women writers and talking about what they're writing reveals about gender ideals and gender practices in the day. Um, but there are these studies that have been coming out in, especially English, the English tradition asking, well, what can male poets and other male writers tell us about masculinity in the period. But um, we had just been slower to do that in Italian studies. Um, and so um, uh, I, I I was like, oh, that's the study I want to do. Great. I see it. Um, if it, it kind of felt like love at first sight, even though as somebody who works on love poems all the time, I don't believe in love at first sight, but it, it did have, that's probably the closest I've ever had to that feeling. Um, and at first I thought the project was going to be just about men, but then it was too hard to give up all the women writers I loved. And so I ended up um, working on this project that is was basically about um, amassing as much lyric poetry as I could, um, as many sonnets mostly as I could um, by men and women. I would, I, would, I would ask people to send me things they found. I, I, but my shorthand for it was if you see any poems that, um, that you would define as... Um, as, as demonstrating gender weirdness, I want them. And I want to try and look at all these poems together and figure out what we might learn about the way people in 16th century Italy, men and women, were thinking about the evolving ideas about gender ideals and gender roles. And on a couple points there that I want to get into as we go on, but one of them is the idea too that, uh, just that idea that if we're talking about gender, we mean women, right? Like it's almost been code for we're writing about women now. I, I have this line in my introduction that is something like, um, women writers is standard scholarly lexicon, but men writers jangles. And I even thought about in the book, trying to use men writers throughout as a, to sort of force the point. Uh, but it sounds so weird that I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. That, that is it. Right. It's like we, um, and that's evolving. Right. Especially it feels like really recently, like this is evolving more rapidly, like um, women's studies groups and departments are becoming women and gender studies. And some are just becoming gender studies. And, um, and there's this new and exciting work, um, on things like early trans studies. So that is all evolving. But historically, um, for the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, that early modern gender studies has been an active subfield that really it's been women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the idea that we can never talk about gender fluidity is so new. Um, and so kind of, I think I'm, I'm actually impressed with how quickly we've taken to it in early modern studies. So I'm, I'm proud of us for our work in the Renaissance, but it's, it's a very new thing. I, I agree. I think that, um, Actually, I was just reading the introduction of a book yesterday, somebody that you interviewed on the podcast, Rebecca Whiteley, um, and she has a, she talks, she has a, an, a, an introductory section on language, and she talks about sort of, you know, pregnant women versus pregnant people and her thinking through of that. And I find that to be reflective of the way that um, early modernists generally are. I, I, I don't feel like anyone's trying to like hold ground. I think people are trying to say, simultaneously place themselves in the historical moment and say, well, how did the people I study think about gender, but also um, how do I want the language I'm using now with contemporary peers? How do I want that to express ideas of sort of gendered personhood? Um, and I think this is just one thing that, I mean, in, even before, because when I started working on this dissertation, you know, uh, uh, 10 years ago, um, we weren't talking about gender fluidity in in the way that we talk about it today. But I, I, I think even then I was, I, I just, what was striking was to me was the range of gendered performances that these poets um, are putting on. And so um, 
And I, I talk about sort of two, I talk about two gendered poles, um, sort of like traditional ideals of masculinity in the period, um, sort of like virility and strength and solidness and steadiness. And then um, a view of femininity that is uh, softness and pleasingness um, and, and then this gray area in between. And I think that really one thing that is fun about lyric poetry um, is, is most people write several of them. Some people write hundreds of them. And so you get all these different chances to experiment with the gender you want to put on. And so um, you take somebody like Victoria Colonna, who is, I, I was recently at a book talk, um, playfully accused of this being a secret Victoria Colonna book. Um, she was in short, the, the, the most famous writer of the woman writer of the Italian Renaissance, um, uh, friends with Michelangelo, just really all around queen. Um, take somebody like her, sometimes she's really leaning into um, a traditional feminine performance. She's this um, bereaved widow, devoted widow, um, Sometimes she pl- she puts on a more masculine performance, like a more virile performance. And in fact, Michelangelo famously referred to her as um, a, a man inside a woman's body. Um, and her friend Pietro Bembo um, said that her her poetry had a gravity to it that he would not have expected from a female writer. So um, she sort of can go to either pole, but she also can play around in the middle. And that's what a lot of these poets are doing. They're just sort of messing around in this sandbox of gender, trying to figure out um, how they want their own voice to be. And I think how they want the society that they live in to be in terms of gender roles. All right. Let's take a step back for a second and talk about just what do these poet what do these poems look like? What is, uh, what is the Pet- Petrarchan lyric? What's a sonnet even? Yeah. Great question. Um, so, uh, so Petrarch was a poet who, an Italian poet who lived in the 14th century. He lived 1304 to 1374. He's sometimes referred to as the first Renaissance man because he had this, um, not in, we, we, when we say Renaissance man now, we sort of t- tend to mean somebody who is like a man of many talents. Um, he was, I, it's, it's used generally in the more traditional sense of somebody who had this like real interest in unearthing all the treasures of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And, um, so that was, so he was this really important humanist in this way. Um, but, and he pr- pr- produced all this important humanist thinking, all these Latin texts. And he wrote like, an, it, it, he didn't finish it, but he wrote this um, Latin epic. Uh, and that's his every writing um, indicates that that is what he wanted to be most famous for, um, that he wanted to be remembered for those things. Um and, but that's not what he ends up being remembered for, uh, neither in the Renaissance nor today. Um, and so Petrarch is, I mean, he really is one of the, we, we call him one of the three crowns, the Tre Corone. He's one of the three most important writers traditionally um, in Italian literature. The, the three crowns are Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio. Um, and what Petrarch is famous for, why he is one of the three crowns, is because of this body of love poetry he produced. He produced 366 poems. Um, he gathered them t- together uh, in a collection in the order he wanted them. Um, he says they were all about the same woman, a woman named Laura, Laura, um, which uh, is also punned a lot in his poetry because Laura was her name. Lauro is Italian for the laurel leaf or the um, the laurel, the laurel being the crown of fame and poetic glory. Um, and he's very famous in his lifetime. He never stops being famous. Um, and when the printing press makes its way to Italy in the late 15th century, um, for a while, he's, I mean, um, he's the, he's the poet, he's the writer who is being most published. Um, there's one, uh, figure that, that, that suggests that he, that Petrarch's love poetry was, not only was it the most published thing in Italy, it was being published three times as much as Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, so no slouch, but uh, the people love their Petrarch. Um, and the and the reason that Petrarch is so important um, 
in addition to being this, this important writer who people love reading, is that he becomes the model for what is maybe the most pervasive, like the most frequently imitated kind of writing in the Renaissance, which is writing poems, mostly sonnets, but not exclusively, most uh, in the model of Petrarch. So using his form, using his language. So he... Um, he doesn't invent, he didn't invent the sonnet, but he basically made the sonnet famous. Um, and, and for those of us who, um, in, in the United States, we, we, in schooling, we don't tend to read a lot of Petrarchan sonnets, but most of us have read a Shakespearean sonnet or two. And so you have Petrarch to thank for that. Um, his style of writing poetry becomes so pervasive that it is, it is the probably number one trend of writing, as I was saying, in Italy. And then it spreads outwards to, play, to countries like um, Spain and France and England. Um, and it just is, I mean, possibly the major literary grammar of the Renaissance. Uh, and so those are all the reasons that Petrarch's important. And the reason he is good for a study like the one I did, where we're trying to figure out uh, what men and women thought about gender in this period is that it is the genre of writing in which Italian women participated first and most frequently um, for reasons we can, we don't have to get into, but um, there are, there are a lot of published women writers in Italy in the Renaissance. Um, there are more, there, um, there are literally hundreds of published women writers in the Renaissance. A lot of it has to do with just the printing press getting there faster. Um, whereas like in places like France, which is like the second place, you get like 30 um, in the same period. So if you have this many women writing um, and mostly what they're writing is not things like epic, no, I mean, not that many people write epic poems, um, not that many people write plays, but almost anybody can write a sonnet. And so if you just are looking for sort of like the material, the raw material, um, in terms of like what people's writing about gender, lyric poetry is the best one. You have so many women writers, you have an infinite number of male writers, um, and you have a lot of times men and women dialoguing with each other or men and men or women and women. So basically it's just like this big gendered conversation. Um, you have a lot of things you can look at. Right on. Okay. So you said earlier that you, you had an alert out to everyone you know that if they came upon something that was like weird, they needed to send that to you. So I would like, I just want to hit on that, that I love that. You know, if you find something weird, because if you do, you know, if you find something that doesn't sound quite right for any number of reasons, you're like, hey, I should sort out what's going on here, right? So I would like to talk about, I would, I would like to hear from you, your method a little bit about, so you're like, I've, Someone says, Shannon, found a weird thing. What what happens next? Great question. Um, I, I, I would sort of just, um, I had sort of my general chapter outline organized by the, the main subgenres of poetry in this period. So we, we tend to think that sonnets are about love, love sonnets, um, and... Petrarch certainly was mostly writing love sonnets and, you know, Shakespeare loves a love sonnet. Um, but in general, sonnets can be about um, all kinds of things. And in Italy in the 16th century, they are basically just as often going to be about um, things like religion or things like sort of friendship or mutual respect. Um, I have this, I have a chapter on correspondence lyric, which is exchanged poems um, or, uh, and, or, or to a lesser degree, some interesting subgenres like conjugal lyrics, a lyric about marriage rather than unrequited love. Um, and I know you and I share an interest in marriage in this period or ventriloquized verse, um, where a poet is writing in the, in the, the, in, in a gender different from the one they were born to. So basically people would send me these things. I would like group them all together. And then I would just sort of like read them and see what came to light, what commonalities, what were some of the strange ones. Um, and when there were groups of similarities, say like in the conjugal verse chapter where I get a bunch of, um, husband poets with a lot of interesting overlap in the way they're praising their wives, um, then I can talk about those as a group. 
And then sometimes you get like a real outlier, like the poem that is um, the second chapter of my book is basically organized around a single poem, probably the weirdest poem that I came across, which is, um, and it, it was a poem from one male poet to a female poet who was his close friend. Um, they were like these, their names are Capoleone Gelfucci and Francesca Turina. They were uh, not only close friends and, um, but also like they exchanged, they traded their work all the time. They had this really beautiful working friendship. Um, they, uh, but one of the poems he wrote to her, um, it, it's based on a pretty standard Petrarchan trope, which is um, a, ma- a male poet saying, oh, I had a dream about my female beloved. Um, a little different here because they don't seem to have been lovers. They seem to have been friends, but like we, we get this structure. Um, but then in, he, he says in this, in this poem, and this is God, it's like this, you can sometimes pack so much into 14 lines. It's amazing. Um, it doesn't feel the, the, to me, the sonnet is not limiting. It seems like this frame that where just like so much play can happen. So he says to Tarina, I had a dream about you. You approached my bedside. You looked like yourself, but more virile. You had, and then he goes into sort of like the tropes of standard Petrarchan beauty. Um, He says, you know, you had beautiful curling hair, but it was short. Um, And I saw your, your skin was pale and rosy, but um, you know, it's a little more masculine. And, and in this dream, this Francesca Torina says to him, um, I have changed sex, but not desire. So she's had a gender swap. She identifies herself as both masculine and feminine. Um, she 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 likens herself to Kynaeus, which is this mythological figure who um, was a maiden who asked to be turned into a warrior. So she says, I've changed from female to male, but she also is still using feminine adjectives for herself. So it's just this wild poem um, and he, and the poet is aroused by this. He starts to reach for her. Um, it, it like, there is like a sexual desire suggested. And then the poem ends on line 14 and he wakes up. So it's, um, it leads to the imagination what might have happened, but there's just so much there about gender fluidity and an, an amplitude of desire. Um, and so this is, so in some, I would sometimes, I would take groups poems that are similar and group them. And I would take these special ones and try to highlight them. <laughs> Okay, that is such a bizarre poem. Oh and my gosh, I, 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 when I got that one, I was like, "This is just, this yeah. is the poetry ching, mic ching. drop. I'm just done." Yeah, right. <laughs> ching ching, we're on this, this, this time. Um, but like, so you're you're reading, you're figuring out what they say. Then there's this place where you got to kind of figure out what they're not saying. For instance, what happens on line 15 if one were to write it. That would be very interesting. But this sits at the um, at the intersection of a lot of other, you know, studies. You talk about books. You talk about, I mean, there's a lot that, that, that talks about, uh, there's a lot of work on lyric poetry that talks about how it reads as metaphor, et cetera, right? So you also have to place these really cool and sometimes really weird and weird cool poems in, the, in this matrix. Uh, you know, right in the midst of a bunch of other things too. So then you're figuring out what's different, but figuring out the ways they're the same and making them make sense within the sources you understand or, yeah. And I think that, yes. And I think that's something that you're, um, well, there's like, I feel like that there's a couple of um, threads that I could pull on in that, that very suggestive response. Um, one thing I will say is in terms of trying to place these poems, one thing that my book argues for is that, um, and because you mentioned, met, you know, are they metaphor? Are they something more? Um, my book argues that um, we should not just read sonnets as literary fantasy or as um, these sort of like diaristic, you know, um, this like solipsistic little like uh, note to oneself, um, but that we should read them as these socially embedded objects that can both reveal to that that can both reflect and shape social history. Uh, and I think that that probably comes out most clearly in my last chapter, which is on conjugal lyric. Um, you, you could look at this, this subgenre that I've identified that I've, um, this, uh, this grouping of poems that I like 
argue, sort of flows down from the model of Vittoria Colonna. I call her the materfamilias of this subgenre because um, she was writing poetry for her dead husband. And then I look at these generations of mostly men, but also women who are writing in her wake. Um, and I argue that, uh, especially in the period we call the Counter-Reformation, so the period, the decades after uh, the Council of Trent, these, this period where um, there's been a split between the Catholic and the Protestant church. Um, I, I argue that because in this period, we see this huge upswell, um, upsurge of conjugal lyric, it tells us something about the way that perceptions of marriage are evolving in this period. And I think, you know, um, the sonnet is not the historian's typical go-to um, document, uh, there are, it is, you have to, you know, take with a grain of salt that there are these sort of like aesthetic restraints that you have, you know, have to keep in mind. Um, you can't just treat it like, I don't know, like a, the production of a, like the literary production of a lie detector te- test, but honestly, what historical document can you treat like that? Um, what historical document is free of, um, biases or, uh, like norms of the form or norms of culture. So um, in terms of, so with this, because what I'm arguing is that there, you really see um, an increased communal value around marital love. Um, I rely in, in this realm, um, in making that argument, I'm relying on a field like history of emotions Um uh, so for example, Barbara Rosenwines has this great stuff about emotional communities where she says, we can never know how these people felt. Like, I can't know if these husbands and wives loved each other, but what we can know is what they said. And what we can study is how those utterances go out into the world and change the way other people are thinking. And there really does seem to be a communal value on love-based marriage in this period. And that matters not just for understanding better counter-Reformation Italy um, or this small group of poets, but also for um, troubling the traditional history of love-based marriage, which, I mean, most historians, the, the sort of traditional historical chronology says that the value of finding a marriage based on mutual respect and love, that that was something that the Protestants more or less invented. Um, But, you know, I have all these poets in Counter-Reformation Italy, which supposedly where like things are retrograde by comparison. And I have them poems by men and women saying we actually, we also value love-based marriage. So that the the history of that gets a little uh, muddied. And I think that that matters and and sort of like expanding that out more that these knowing about these things matters, not even just for those of us who are early modernists in different countries. But I mean, um, when the Supreme Court ruled on um, on marriage access, the first section of the opinion was a history of marriage from antiquity up through the 20th century. And so, you know, just like um, just to say that, like, in small ways, perhaps, but in some ways, uh, having a better understanding of of the history of gendered society, it can have impacts outside of our fields. And I just and so I my one of the big um, pushes of my book is to say, let's look at what these poems have to say. And we not absolutely don't want to toss out other traditional historical archival documents like court records or wills or things. I just want to read all these things together and say, um, you know, especially because a lot of those kinds of documents tend to be sort of top down male authored, like, well, what if we listen to people who actually are writing from within marriages? And what if we listen to people who um, were women? (laughs) Then what would we know? Then what would we know? And there's so many perspectives there, right? We get um, what law looks like. We get how people interpret it, um, the mediated documents that court documents are. And so maybe um, a lyric, Oh, maybe a sonnet doesn't tell me precisely how the average man and woman interacted, but it is, and it, it provides kind of, you know, this, it's an ideal. It has to be legible. It has to make sense. 
Um, an ideal, I think, is a nice way to put it. And that's, I think, probably the, that's like this communal value. It's like um, we're all striving, even today, right? It's we're, we're all striving for an ideal. Like love-based marriage is an ideal in the society we live in. Um, reality often falls short, but that's what you're trying for. And so say, like, for example, there's this one um, couple that uh, I'm hoping to um, sneak them into my next book project because I feel like I had so much more to say about them and I just ran out of room. But um, uh, uh, the the poet's name is... Giuliano Gozzolini, his wife was um, uh, Chiara Albignana. Um, they were uh, they 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 were there was kind of like power couple in Milan. He was a writer, and she had things dedicated to her, and was moving around in intellectual society. Um, he publishes five volumes of poetry in his lifetime, um, and. In the first, he's clearly over the course of these five volumes, his his public ethos as devoted husband is evolving. The first volume, it looks very much there's 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 love poems to different women in there, including his wife, but at least one other woman. But by the time the last volume is published, he um, has added titles to each one that um, describes how each one is is for his wife Abignana, and there's even a. Um, a biography, because uh, actually this, the last one's published posthumously. There's a biography of the poet written by his friend that says every single poem in here is for his wife and he never loved any woman but her. Okay, so that is like fascinating as a way to watch sort of like the evolution uh, in terms of the value of the ethos of devoted husband. But also, and but in the end, it's like, did he really love her? Did she even like him? I, I can never recapture that. But uh, again, he like clearly is intent on presenting himself as being a great lover of this wonderful woman. Um, after his death, there's a poetry collection that is compiled in his honor. And most of the poems talk about them as a power couple. So she is, so she, her value in society has certainly been elevated by this poetry. And then this is, and I, I, I think this is actually the beginning of my epilogue is this little story. Um, again, I can't know especially how she felt, but um, something that's interesting in the epistolary record is that the men who compiled that last posthumous volume of Gozzolini's poetry, there's letters between them describing how they met with his wife, Albignana, um, and how she gave her blessing on the project and she handed over the poetry. So she was, in a sense, an editor, um, an unnamed in the publication, but an editor of this like last legacy, this like last monument to their their public persona to their love. And she, uh, and this is how she wanted it organized herself. So um, I think that is just suggestive in terms of like, again, do these people love each other? I don't know. Did they like, what did they fight about? Lots of things probably. Um, But this is an example of, of a culturally uh, mobile and ambitious couple who by all accounts loved each other and also um, were sort of like using that love to like um, mutually self-elevate. Sure. Wow. I've got so many modern, weird, modern parallels going through in my head. I'm like, I think about uh, Beyonce all the time in this regard. (laughs) Absolutely. was Beyonce and Jay-Z. I was thinking about like, this is the the most obvious modern parallel. Yeah, sure. Um, Kim and Kanye in better days, but yes. Um, and actually, yeah. inter- I mean, because you could do this like the you know, if popular music is sort of like the modern day lyric poem. Um, I mean, you could do this all day. Like uh, it, Taylor Swift is actually a great example in terms of thinking about somebody whose um, whose songs are read like aggressively biographically. Um, and so the, in terms of if you're trying to think about this question of like how much of poetry is performance and how much of it is biography, um, I feel like uh women songwriters in particular tend to be like people want to read them as straight by autobiography, uh, which also happens to early modern women writers. Anyway, there's all these parallels you can make. Um, the Folger library, I I think on their podcast, they, they had somebody once who, um, they, they, they have this, they, they, they translate pop songs into Shakespearean sonnets. Um, so yeah, the parallels are there. It's, that's wonderful. I'll have to check. I don't know how I've missed that, actually. Um, yeah. I, will have this, um, I feel like you can be flip about all these things, right? I I, um, uh, I I recently gave as a parallel of like why lyric poems matter. Um, I, get, I, gave as a mod- I gave this as a modern parallel. I said, um, 
if you wanted to know about, if 500 years from now, somebody like me, a scholar like me wants to know what people thought about marriage in 2023, um, they could consult authoritative elite opinions. They could read the opinion on a Burgerfell. They could, um, they could read sermons from like big mega churches. They could read opinions in the New York times. And those, those are three totally valid sources. They absolutely, they're, they're relevant. They give part of the picture, but if you wanted to know how more people felt, you probably would go to a place like Twitter and, and you would say to yourself, okay, I get it. This, there's this element of public performance here. And, um, this genre is constrained by the word count. Um, and, and maybe I don't think this is as serious a document as those other ones I just named. But it certainly helps flesh out the picture, right? And that's what I say about lyric poetry. Uh, yeah, so um, so there you have it. A lot more people are reading Twitter and listening to Taylor Swift and like that's a, than are reading uh, op-eds in the New York Times. Yeah, right. and, these, um, and you know, the things we... Um, these kinds of public exchanges... Um, I mean, in some ways, uh, and I'm with the caveat that I'm actually not really a social media person, but um, these, you know, Twitter can just be a place for escape, um, but it also can be this place where, you know, this this place where people um, are like uh, reflecting values and also trying to shape a community's values. So uh, it seems to me useful in this way to sort of think about just like all the range of texts that we have. Such a great segue back to your book, because this is another point um, I think that you've you make in the book, and I think you've also kind of made here as well, is that um, by describing, by writing like this, by writing these sonnets, by publishing these things, by having this discourse, that in itself works to change the nature of love, right? Or gender performance or whatever. Yeah, and right, this is one of those emotional community ideas is that, or like um, like Reddy talks about um, these like emotional utterances, like I say something and it goes out in the world and by saying it aloud, it changes me and it changes other people. Um, that is quite convincing to me. We've been talking for quite a while now and um, I've, I really want to kind of wrap up the argument you're making with this book. Uh, so... What what do you think would be an outstanding example to discuss to let our listeners know kind of your argument about gender, about Petrarch and the making of Renaissance gender? Thank you for that question. I think um, the chapter that I, in the end, I was probably most excited about, and the chapter that I came to last actually was, is the first chapter, which uh, I call the People's Petrarch, and that chapter is instead of being about poets, um, it's it's more about editions of Petrarch and the readers of those editions. So that chapter shows how there is an evolution in the Renaissance in the way that people come to understand Petrarch and also Laura in terms of gender. So um, I start in that chapter by showing biographies of Petrarch from um, the century after his death. So from the, the, the 1400s and talking about how they all are presenting Petrarch in a, in a, in a pretty similar way. There's like a lot of emphasis on, again, returning to this idea of sort of traditional masculine traits. Um, this, they talk about Petrarch as a stoic. They, um, they, if they mention him being in love at all, they say, you know, oh, he, he was, it was a brief love. He was in control of those emotions. He was really a Latin writer. He was an epic writer. He was a good Republican. Um, and these are all things that Petrarch in his own lifetime seemed to be trying to emphasize about himself. He started an autobiography of, uh, and it was, uh, it's called the, um, uh, the Epistola, the, the, uh, and, um, in that text, and also his friend Boccaccio was writing a biography about him. They sort of say the same things. Everyone's giving you to put it reductively sort of like a masculine Petrarch. And then a uh, hundred years after Petrarch dies, the printing press comes to Italy. And as I mentioned, uh, Petrarch is the thing that's being printed most. Um, and almost immediately, almost from the, the, the very first printing of Petrarch uh, uh, from, from 1470, you, you get these 
additions to the text, these paratexts, these supplements to the text that are giving us a completely different kind of Petrarch. Um, So these, for the first hundred years of Petrarch printings, which is basically what I look at, you have these, you get these things like biographies of the poet, but they're emphasizing different things. They're not really interested in the Latin and the epic so much. They're interested in uh, the love story with Laura and these love poems he wrote, not in Latin, but in the Italian vernacular. Um, and you get things like um, a the, the transcription of a letter he wrote to his friend Giacomo Colonna saying, this was a real woman and I loved her. Um, you're asking if she was real or just a metaphor for the laurel crown. And I'm telling you, I wish to God she were a fiction and not a madness, which is what she was for me. Um, so that letter is getting included in the back of the poems. Um, you, at a certain point um, in the, uh, from around 1525 onward, you get this really crazy addition by a man named Alessandro Valutalo, who says, um, I visited the places where the poems are set. I, I, and I included a map. Um, I am including for you a biography of Laura. Um, not only is she not just a metaphor for the laurel crown, I'm telling you who she is. He didn't know. Nobody knows. We don't know. Um, but this, you just like, it's, I call these, I say that these editions become sort of a hybrid between critical edition and fan fiction. Um, and I argue that this is, that as these editions evolve, what you're seeing in a sense is um, a dialogue between curators of these texts. So editors like Valutello, also printers, people like Aldous Minutius and Giolito are um, like really experimenting with forms that will meet the demands of the other uh, interlocutor here, which is the reader. The readers and the curators are going back and forth. They're, they are building the Petrarch that they want. They are building a Petrarch who is gendered for their age. And this is a Petrarch who is um, not a stoic man writing epics alone. This is a man who um, was in love with a real woman and um, was a more social being. And Um, he just really has like a more complex kind of masculinity and it really reflects more the gender ideals you're seeing in this like 16th century courtly society. Um, A man who is open to the feminine, both in terms of having a real lover and also writing in the vernacular, which is a language that can be read by men and women. Um, And a lot of this... um, sort of um, a critical lens shaping the way that I'm reading these texts is um, studies like celebrity studies and fandom studies, which ask us to give more agency to the reader. Um, And yeah, I just think it's so fascinating in the end because these, these, these editions are way more, they're so popular. Um, They've been studied a bit less, I think taken a bit less seriously um, because they are deemed to be less correct. And, and by one measure, they are less correct. Like Velutello, God love him, is like kind of nuts. Like he's so smart. He has a very like rigorous tra- humanist training, but he, he's like, he just outright rejects the manuscript that we now know to be Petrarch's own handwritten ordering of the poems. And he says, I'm going, I know the real order of the poems. I'm putting them in an order that tells a legible love story and any poem that's not about Laura, I'm just going to take it out. So that is less correct. That is like not, we wouldn't call that like sound scholarship nowadays, but, um, but it's what, I guess like it's intellectually less correct, but in terms of like a sort of like pathetic or like emotional reading, it is correct in the term that it's of in the in the sense that it's like what people wanted, and it's not like oh maybe that no, it's not even close. Like there's um, something like the the edition we think of as the most correct from this period, the one that Pietro Bembo put together for Aldus Manutius in 1501. Um, that one is never reprinted. It is so correct, um, and people are not interested. These ones that Velutello does with the maps and the biographies and the letters and those that gets reprinted. 30 times and becomes the basis 
for Petrarchan editions in France. So it like goes out beyond Italy. It's just like, it's not even close. This is what people wanted. And I think there's just like a value in, in, in asking what did readers want? What were they clamoring for? And what were the gender ideals they wanted when they were making Petrarch and Laura anew for themselves, when they were making the people's Petrarch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is then like that big question? You know, what is what's the correct Petrarch? Is the Petrarch from his pen? Oh, OK. But is it the Petrarch everyone read and knew and loved? Is it the Petrarch that was understood to be the case for however many years? And I think that this is important in terms of um, that. That's totally right. And that's like in terms of gender readings of Petrarch, this is just so interesting because uh, the sort of critical commonplace about Petrarch's poetry. Um, and I think some of this is, is coming from sort of like later, especially English poets and the way they imitate him, but is that it's misogynist um, that, uh, that he doesn't let Laura speak and that he's just um, taking away her agency. And by describing her in pieces, like her hair and her lips and her hands, he's just sort of like disembodying her. Um, I, I don't actually I'm in, I'm in the middle of a, of a project with a non-academic friend called Year of Petrarch, where we are replicating this early modern practice of reading one Petrarch and one poem by Petrarch a day for 366 days and reading them at this pace and this closely. I have to say, I don't even agree with that reading. Lauder's talking all the time in these poems, but more to the point, by the time we get to the 16th century and all these men and women are imitating Petrarch, it's definitely not true anymore. You have all these women poets in Italy. They are not voiceless. Like they, um, However, we might choose to read Petrarch's poems when we're just looking at them sort of like naked and unadorned. Um, if you look at them in these editions that are flying around Italy in the 1500s, you see that they have created a Petrarch and a Laura that are, again, abiding by, abiding by the gendered ideals of this society and are really productive in terms of like giving voices to men and women who want to uh, have these like active and questioning conversations about evolving gender roles. So great. Wow. Awesome. This is so exciting. This is exciting stuff, people. Oh God, I'm having so much fun. I feel excited all the time. <laughs> That's I awesome. Believe, I'm always like, people pay me to read poems. This is what a life. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Right. You want me to do what? Oh my yeah. God. We did it every uh, yeah. day. Really. All right. Hey, speaking of what uh, what you're doing, like this be- reading poems. So what are you doing right now? What's your new project? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so I actually, uh, and possibly unwisely, am at work on two book projects right now. Um, there's the primary one. Um, they both grew out of the, they both grew out of the, the book just in totally different ways. Um, so there's the project I'm working on now for my long-term fellowship at the Huntington is called um, Women's Reproductive Bodies in Lyric Poetry of the French and Italian Renaissance. So it, it essentially takes what I do in that conjugal lyric chapter and expands it out and says, um, if, if, if historical documents plus poems can tell us more about marriage in this period, what could that combination tell us about perceptions of women's bodies and bodily autonomy in this period. Um, so it kind of grew out of that. And, and also um, a colleague of mine, um, Anna Wainwright at uh, New Hampshire, she organized this really cool transhistorical interdisciplinary conference on breastfeeding in last fall and asked me to give a paper about um, breastfeeding in poems. And I started finding even just sort of like this 20 minute paper, I started finding that some of the things that come up in poems are different from what you see in historical texts. Um, so for example, noble women who you would think, who, who ought to be having a wet nurse um, based on what like medical texts and, and sort of conduct manuals tell us are writing poems about their experience breastfeeding and sort of like what that, their like emotional, like their affective response to that experience. Um, and so that's one small difference, but I feel like I, I so I, but my book is asking like, what else can we find? What other surprises will we find in terms of things like um, procreative sex and miscarriage and abortion? Um, so that's this project. And the reason I'm at the Huntington is because um, they have one of the most significant collections 
of historical texts relating to obstetrics and gynecology in the world. It's called the Longo Collection and it goes back to the Middle Ages. So it is like, if you want to know about like historical medical representations of women's body, like this is a good place to be. And then my second project um, and my secondary project to that is um, in some ways grew out of this, the, the chapter I was just talking about, the People's Petrarch, and this interest I have in um, sort of the long history of participatory fan culture um, uh, and the um, this sort of grew out of some also some public talks I was giving um, at the Huntington last year related to an exhibition they had called Inspiring Walt Disney. It came from the Met and it was about the influence of French decorative arts on um, the older Walt Disney films um, and sort of through doing those talks and spending some time um, in the Walt Disney Imagineering Library, which is a wonderful and weird place to be. Um, I basically um, am doing the second book project that I am now calling, I'm, I'm calling at the moment Walt Disney's Books, which is about, um, uh, among other things, this massive, like over 300 books, collection of books that he brought back from Europe um, and just trying to like, uh, you know, there's lots of like smart studies about um, sort of like Disney films and their use of fairy tales and their use of European culture, but um, they, not from a literary point of view um, and uh, mostly from like a cinema studies point of view. So um, I'm just, so I'm, I want to dig into that collection of books and see what comes up. Yeah. And well, and it's such a great time to do it too. That's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, I- it was a hundredth year of the Disney studios actually. So it's like, it feels like a, Petrarch is all about anniversaries. Petrarch always writes poems on the anniversary of Laura's death. So I'm, you know, I feel like you have to take an anniversary as a sign of something. Absolutely. You, no question. That's, that's just, that's just sonnet logic. Um, (laughs) Sonnet logic would be a great book title. (laughs) It would actually. I love it. Um, I am so excited about the work you're doing and I'm so glad you get to spend this year really making that. Um, Two books is, I mean, mad, obviously, but I have I have high hopes. All right, they're going to advance so- at their own pace. It's going to they're going to grow. Like, I don't. Yeah, they'll. It'll be magic. I don't. I don't know how that applies, but it feels. So I'm just going to keep saying that. Something. Yep. Um, thanks so much. It's been so great to talk to you. Fabulous, wonderful, uh, wonderful life here. Thanks much, and uh, we'll chat some more about the when we when you uh, publish the next one. I want you to talk to me about it. Oh, I'd be so happy to. All right. Ciao, ciao.